0: Thanks, Mickey, for reading God's word for us this morning. Uh, Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. It's great to see each one of you here, and so thankful that you've joined us this morning. And as we prepare to look more in depth at this passage that was just read for us, I'd love to pray and ask for God's help um, as we look into his word. So uh, let's pause and do that now. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have... Um, gathered us together here as your people around your word, that we don't gather uh, around a, a figure or um, a, a personality, but that we gather around your word, which points us to Jesus. And I pray that as we look at more of who he is uh, on display in this text, um, that you would reveal uh, yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, loneliness is deadly. Loneliness is deadly. That was the title of a recent article by Jessica Olin published on uh, Slate magazine. And in this article, she points out a number of sobering studies that reveal just how serious a problem loneliness is in our culture. She writes, I began to research loneliness and came across several alarming studies. She writes, loneliness is not just making us sick, it's killing us. Loneliness is a serious health risk. And she says that studies of elderly people and social isolation concluded that those without adequate social interaction were twice as likely to die prematurely. And she says the the increased mortality rate is comparable to that of smoking and that loneliness is twice as dangerous as obesity. It impairs uh, immune functions. it, It boosts inflammation. It can lead to arthritis and diabetes and heart disease. She says, loneliness is breaking our hearts. But as a culture, we rarely talk about it. And she, and she points out too in the study that loneliness has doubled since 1980. In 1980, 20% of adults said that they were lonely. Now, 40% of adults say that they're lonely. And this means that if you're sitting in a meeting at, a, at work, at a conference table, if you're at the lunch table at school, that there's a good chance that half of the people sitting at that table, if they're, if they're really honest, would say that I'm lonely. I'm really lonely. But whether we're one of those who would raise our hand in a survey and say, yeah, I'm lonely, all of us have felt lonely at one time or another, haven't we? I mean, we've all had the experience of loneliness. And and maybe even this morning, maybe you feel alone in your marriage. Maybe you feel like, I I don't know my spouse. I'm living with a stranger and and they don't know me. Or, Or maybe you feel alone in your singleness Maybe every wedding invitation, every Valentine's Day commercial—and they're so prominent now, aren't they?—reminds you that, man, I don't have that relationship that I long for. Maybe you feel alone as a parent. You're a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad, and and it's been days uh, since you've been out of the house with this weather. Or it's been days since you've had a conversation with another adult about something other than the kids. Maybe you feel alone in unemployment or underemployment, in, in sickness or in weakness. Or, or maybe you feel alone in shame. Shame is one of the loneliest places to be, isn't it? A feeling that, that I'm a fraud, that, that someone's going to find out that I'm not really all that, that they think I am. I'm going to find out what, what I looked at on my computer. If, if anyone knew who I really was, that they would utterly reject me. Now, I don't think we often think about God as a cure for loneliness, but when you pause to think about what's really the worst part of loneliness, the worst part of loneliness actually isn't being alone, is it? It's being unknown. See, the worst part of loneliness isn't just being alone, it's the feeling of being unknown. Again, in the article by Jessica Olin, she highlights that most of us know what it's like to be lonely in a room full of people, which is the same reason even a celebrity can be deeply lonely. You can be surrounded by hundreds of adoring fans, but if there's no one you can rely on, no one who knows you, you will feel isolated. You see, it's not just the presence or absence of people in our lives that determine if we feel lonely. It's whether or not we feel known, that we feel understood, that we feel accepted and cared for. But this feeling of being unknown, of of feeling lonely, this this isn't anything new. We're we're certainly not the first people to feel this way. And and as we turn to the book of Hebrews, which we've been studying together over the past few weeks— we can imagine what the loneliness of the people who this first was written to must have felt like. Because you remember the audience that the book of Hebrews was originally addressed to was Christians in the first century uh, who were Christians, and they were also Jewish. So not only were they, were they Christians, which at that time in Rome was considered kind of a bizarre cult, Um, But they were Jewish Christians, so they were coming from a group of people that was already marginalized, moving into an even further marginalized group. And talk about isolation, feeling like no one understands what you're going through. And therefore, it's not surprising that some of them are thinking about giving up on Jesus. And so it's into that context that the author, really the preacher—this was first delivered as a message that was written down for us then as the book of Hebrews—it's into that context that he writes— and in this book so far, we've been reminded about who Jesus is, how, how highly exalted he is as God, and how low he became for our sakes in becoming a human. He's warned them about drifting. You remember this metaphor of drifting? He says, don't drift away. He's reminded them that there is still rest for them. if They don't harden their hearts. And this morning, the author continues to address this nagging question, which is, is Jesus really worth it? Is he really worth holding on to? And what we find in these verses that Mickey read for us is the answer comes back a resounding yes. Why? Because Jesus knows you. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. And therefore you can go to him. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see two things. First, we're going to see that only our God knows. And then second, briefly at the end, we're going to see that only our God can really be known. So only this God, only this God of the Bible knows us truly, and only he can be known. So first we see that only this God, only this God of the Bible, only this God who has become a man in Jesus really knows. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. So if you have a Bible, I'd love to show you this. So grab one from the pew, or if you have one on your phone, just pull it up. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. If you're newer to the Bible, the book of Hebrews is at the very end, so just kind of keep turning pages till you get to the very end. It's on page 1003, like Mickey said, in the pew Bibles. And this is what the author writes, verses 14 and 15. Look at what he writes. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. See, the point that the author is making in these verses is that Jesus, as our God, knows exactly what it is like to be us. He knows exactly how you feel. So so where do we see that in this text in particular? Well, well, first we see that he knows exactly how you feel because he knows our unending weakness. Jesus knows our unending weakness. Did you notice the word sympathy in verse 14 there? Well, the Greek word that is translated by that word sympathy, if you— Bible was originally written in Greek, the New Testament. Um, And the word that's translated sympathy there, it only appears twice in all of the New Testament. And and both times it actually appears here in the book of Hebrew. Once here in chapter 4 and then later on in chapter 10, verse 34, which translated compassion. And the word means to feel along with someone else, to empathize. And listen to what one of the leading Bible translation handbooks says about this particular word leading scholars say in a number of languages the closest equivalent to being sympathetic with maybe listen to this to understand completely how one feels or to feel in one's heart just like someone else feels so think about that for a moment where are you weakest think about where where are you weakest <laughs> Usually, what, when I think about where am I weakest, usually money comes to mind. I'm, I'm always worrying about money. I'm spending too much of it. I'm not giving enough of it away. I always worry. I always have anxiety. I'm always weak when it comes to thinking about money. Where are you weakest? Maybe it's not with, with money. Maybe it's just feeling, uh, maybe you're actually physically weak. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're struggling with cancer. I know many of you know your stories or struggling with physical weakness of some kind. Maybe you feel limitation or lack of confidence or a feeling of inadequacy. Wherever that weakness is, where you look at it, and you think, this is the place of, of greatest weakness for me. Jesus knows that weakness because he shares in our humanity. When you think about who Jesus was, He experienced exhaustion. He knows what it's like to come home exhausted after a long day of work. He knows what it's like to, to be tired, to be hungry, to not feel totally 100 percent well. He knows what it was like to have a headache or to feel a stomach ache. But maybe the, the weakness that you're experiencing isn't—maybe it's, it's relational, right? Maybe, and Jesus knew what it was like to be disliked, even hated. And Jesus knew what it was like to be a kid. Jesus knew what it was like to be a teenager. And Jesus knew what it was like to have complicated family life, right? I mean, if you read through the Gospels, these records of Jesus' life, there's at one point where his mom and his brothers want to get him away from the crowd because they're calling him insane. I mean, that's, you know, that's some family dynamics to deal with. You see, when the text says that he sympathizes with our weakness, it isn't in some abstract way. No, he knows it firsthand because he's one of us. And, and philosophers make a distinction between what is called knowledge by description and knowledge by acquaintance. So knowledge by description and knowledge by acquaintance. Let me give you an example of this. Um, I can say uh, that I know what it's like to be pregnant. Um, I I mean, I read the books. I've watched the videos. I went to the birthing classes. I talked to the doctors. I mean, um, I lived with a pregnant woman for 41 weeks. Um, I even wore the uh, pregnancy sympathy belly. Um, Rachel uh, (laughs) took that picture. So, um, you know, there's a sense in which I know what it's like to be pregnant, right? But, but moms, you know, any of you who are a mom, you know that wearing that thing for 10 minutes, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface, right, of what it, what it really is. You, you can take that down now. <laughs> um, of what it really is to be pregnant. That's knowledge by description. Someone's told me what it's like. You have knowledge by acquaintance, if you're a mom, of what it's like to be pregnant. You've been there. You see, Jesus has knowledge of our weakness by acquaintance. He's been there. He's lived it. He doesn't just have a good description of what it would be like to feel this way. No, he's felt it. See, there's no emotion. There's no fear that you can come to Jesus with and say, and that he can't say to you, I know exactly what that's like. I know exactly what that's like. So so Jesus knows our unending weakness, but second, he knows exactly how you feel because he knows your constant temptation. He knows what it's like for us as people who face constant temptation. We see this in the second half of verse fifteen. Look there again, he says, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, there's no place that we are weaker than in our besetting temptations. I mean, you know the ones, right? I mean, the ones that are just always there. They, they, they maybe go dormant for a while, kind of like a volcano. It's like it hasn't erupted, but they're always just sitting there. And you know they're just waiting to come back awake again. Again, Jesus knows what that feels like. Says so he's been tempted in every respect as we are, and yet he never gave in to the temptation. So actually, that kind of raises some questions for us, I'm sure. We need to press into that a little bit more. So how is it that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are? Because wait a second, Jesus didn't live every single human life, and certainly things have changed. I mean, Jesus never had a computer, which he was tempted to look at pornography on. He didn't have a Facebook account, which threatened to suck in all of his time and force him to be constantly envious and discontented with other people's lives, right? (laughs) But in Matthew chapter 4, And again, Matthew is one of the four Gospels that records Jesus' life. We get a curtain pulled back on the temptation that Jesus did experience. And and I think it helps us understand how the author here in the can say that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is out in the wilderness for 40 days and he's fasting, he's hungry, he's weak. And then Satan comes to him and says, and he tempts him. Satan tempts him to turn bread into—or stones into bread— this is a temptation to, to have comfort. And then later, Satan says, No, now, now throw yourself off this tower. Stage a dramatic rescue by angels. This, again, it's a temptation to demonstrate power, to be spectacular, show control. And Satan finally tempts him to bow down. He says, Bow down to me, and I will give you everything in the world. Again, a temptation to power, control. And underlying all of these temptations, Satan starts it off by saying, if you're the son of God, it's a temptation about his identity. It's like, if this is who you truly are, it appeals to this, this need to be accepted. You see, no matter what the surface channels that temptations come through, and they can come through a myriad of different ways, but they always come down into several root categories— of, of a desire for comfort or control or power or acceptance, all the temptations we experience, they, they ultimately leak down to some of those root things that we all we need, we desire. I mean, think about it right? A, a, a temptation to misuse money or sex or, or food or anything all of these are ways of getting comfort, they're ways of getting power, they're ways of being accepted, of feeling loved. So while Jesus may have not experienced the particular moment of temptation of of internet pornography or Facebook addiction, he knows exactly what it feels like to be tempted to find comfort or control or power or acceptance apart from God. He knows exactly what that feels like. But that brings us to another thing here that we need to take a closer look at, because I'm sure some of you are saying at this point, Bill, you keep making this point that, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and, and we've been seeing this throughout Hebrews. So if that's true, if, if he's fully God, can't, is it true that he can really know what it's like to be tempted? I mean, if he's God, then wasn't it kind of easy for him? I think it's here that, that British literary scholar C.S. Lewis is, is so helpful. And Lewis' writing during World War II uh, helps make this point. He says that only by resisting temptation do you actually know how strong it is. Listen to what he writes. He says, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it truly is. After all, you only find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by walking against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. He says, We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows the full of what temptation means. In a similar vein, actor Russell Brand uh, wrote a piece, powerful piece, about addiction for the Guardian newspaper back in March, and it's resurfaced last week in light of the tragic death of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And in the article, uh, Russell conveys the same kind of idea that resisting temptation is actually much harder than giving into it. He writes, It's been ten years since I used drugs or drank alcohol, and my life has improved immeasurably. I have a job, a house, a cat, good friendships, and a generally bright outlook. And then he says the price of this, though, is constant vigilance. You see, Jesus actually knows far more about temptation and how hard it is to resist it than you and I will ever know. Because he's the only one who faced the full fury of temptation's onslaught throughout his entire life and yet never once gave in again, some of you who are maybe more familiar with the Bible, you might be saying, now, Bill, his whole life, really, doesn't Matthew chapter 4 just say it was like for 40 days that he experienced this temptation? Yes, I mean in Matthew chapter 4, but but that wasn't the only time that Jesus was tempted. Throughout his entire life, he experienced temptation. Actually, even right up to the very end of his life. If you look down a few verses into chapter 5 of Hebrews, it says, "...in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears." That phrase loud cries and tears most likely refers to the garden of Gethsemane. This is where Jesus was right before his arrest and crucifixion. So even in the final days, even in the final hours of Jesus' life, there's moments where he was tempted to, to distrust God's plan. And yet he never did. He never gave in. See, we don't just have a God who can imagine really well what it must like be like to struggle. He knows. He knows the tug of sin. And this means that first, that experiencing temptation isn't in of itself a sin. I think one of Satan's biggest tricks is often to say, look, you're being tempted. You're so rotten and sinful and weak and, and you might as well just give in now. But if Jesus experienced temptation and yet never sinned, just the mere experience of feeling tempted itself isn't a sin. In fact, feeling tempted is an invitation to trust. It's an opportunity to remember that you're not alone in this. That Jesus has been there. That he knows exactly how you feel. So not only does our God know our unending temptation, not only does he not know our our constant uh, weakness, He also knows our greatest need. As human beings made in the image of God, we have rebelled against God and gone our own way. And and our greatest need is for someone to bring us back to Him, to forgive our sin, to restore our relationship with the only source of life and hope in the universe. Did you catch the high priest language that's used in these verses that we read earlier? The author's already used this language of high priest a couple of other times in chapter two and in chapter three. And, and actually over course of course, the next five or so uh, chapters of the book of Hebrews, the author's going to get into that a lot more. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on it here. But what is this language of high priest? What does that even mean? Why is that important? Well, a priest was someone who stood in between God and his people, who made a way for God's people to interact with him, to know him, Again, a lot more on this in the coming weeks. But we learn in the first few verses of chapter 5 that the high priest alone could enter the most holy place, the place where God's presence dwelled on, on earth. This is in the Old Testament, on, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And a normal human priest, it says in two, could sympathize with our weakness, but the problem is, is that we need the, that person, they needed to offer sacrifices for himself too because they were broken. And, and, and in the end, the problem is, too, that this high priest, it doesn't, he doesn't go on forever. He kept dying, right? I mean, he's a human being. He would get to old and then eventually die and a new one would come. But the author draws the contrast. Jesus is the great high priest who can provide access once and for all because he's able to enter finally, because he's defeated death and rescued us eternally. See, only a God who came near Can bring us near. Only one who is exactly like us and yet nothing like us at the same time could be the great high priest who meets our greatest need both now and forever. You see, no other religion makes these kinds of claims. And lots of religions will, will say that, that God is holy, that he's other, that he's unknowable. Uh, others will say that, that he's near, he's, it, we're all a part of God, um, that he's, that he's in, in, imminent, he's close to us. But see, only Christianity makes the scandalous claim that, that God, who's both wholly other and separate and creator of all things, he's u- utterly other than us, actually became a human as well, that he drew near to us. And you see, Christianity is either the, the greatest hoax or, or it's the best news. If, it's, if this is true, that Jesus, who, is, who was and is truly and fully human, and truly and fully God, then this means that we have someone who knows exactly how we feel, and yet also someone who is able to help us, who is able to restore us, who is able to succeed where we have failed. Now this morning, you may be here and you may say, I don't, I don't know if I buy this. I don't I, or Bill, I don't believe this. I'm just here with my spouse, made me come this morning. And I'm not sure if I even want to be here. But, but hearing this, maybe there's perhaps some small part of you that, that, even if you can't wrap your mind around this, even if you don't yet know if this is true, that is there a small part of you that even wants it to be true? That there would be a God of the universe who's completely in control, powerful, created all things, and yet wants to know you, has, knows exactly how you feel. So we've seen that only our God knows us, knows exactly how we feel. But here in the last few minutes, as we look at verse 16, we're going to see that because of this, only this God can be truly known. Only this God can be truly known. So look back in your Bibles with me if you will at verse 16. This is where the author tells us kind of the why the truth of verse 14 and 15 matters. He's saying this is this is the so what. He says in verse 16, "Let us then draw com- with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." Let us draw near, he says. So there's three things that we see in this verse. The first one, is this. First, only God can be known because he's approachable. He's approachable. If God understands our weakness and our temptation, then we can go to him because he has made a way. And again, this is the point of all the high priest language that we saw earlier, that Jesus has offered the final sacrifice through his death and resurrection. And now instead of going on our behalf once a year, he takes us by the hand and he leads us into the very presence of God. And you and I now through Jesus can be there whenever we want. Because of Jesus, our God is approachable. And if this is who our God is, then, then, then why don't we go to him more? That's kind of what I was struck by this week as I was reading. Why don't I go to him more? If you haven't given your life to him, you'll be left on the outside looking in. You see, only Jesus offers this. Only he makes a way. Only he understands Will you go to him. Second, only this God can be known because he's welcoming. You see, he's not just approachable, right? Because if he—God can be approachable, but, but he could still be pretty scary, right? I mean, we, you've probably all had that experience. Maybe at some point, I mean, just because your boss has an open-door policy doesn't mean that that person's approachable or welcoming, I should say. Just because they're approachable doesn't necessarily mean they're welcoming. You see, Jesus isn't just approachable. He hasn't just made a way. He's welcoming. He invites us in. This is why the author says, come with confidence. Go with boldness before him. We can come to him. Remember, Jesus knows what it is like to be weak. To face constant temptation. And so he warmly welcomes those who are weak and who are tempted. How often I forget this. When I struggle with temptation, and, you know, we all have got a whole list of these things. When I struggle with temptation, and I think about, okay, I need to pray and ask Jesus for help in this moment, I am often likely to picture him standing with arms crossed, shaking his head, saying, Bill, really? This again? Are you still dealing with this? Kind of that disappointed, disapproving look on his face. But you see that picture, that picture of a Jesus who when you come to him in need is looking down disapprovingly, arms crossed. It is a lie. It's literally a lie from hell because Jesus is able to sympathize with us. He knows exactly how it feels. So when you go to him for help, picture him with compassion in his eyes, saying, I've been there, Bill. I know exactly what you're going through. I know how hard it is. I know how much this hurts. I'm with you. I won't give up on you. Come to me always. That's the God we have. So go to him. Go to him with boldness. If this is our God, why don't we pray more? He stands with open arms, embracing the weak, welcoming sinners, welcoming even me. And finally, this God is also generous. Look at the last part of verse 16 one more time. He says, Let us draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. You Notice that little phrase, throne of grace. It's an odd phrase. It's the only time that phrase occurs in the Bible, throne of grace. And, and it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? When we think of thrones, we usually think of power and authority and majesty. We don't usually think of Grace. And mercy, forgiveness, and help. But Jesus says, This throne that I sit on is a throne full of grace. Whenever we need it, He says, Come and receive. In the time of need, in the moment where we're most desperate, come to Him and find grace and mercy. Go to Him with boldness, go to Him with expectation. You will not leave empty handed. He's generous. See, only Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He entered this world for our sake. He became weak to rescue us, abandoned on the cross that you and I will never be abandoned, that we will never truly be lonely, we'll never be alone. He rose again so that we could experience the life that we long to live. Your weakness, your temptation, they will not have the last word. For though Jesus became weak, he's not weak anymore. And he will make it right. She reminds me of a story that I read a few weeks ago in a book that was published a while back. And it was about a group of American hostages that were rescued by a small team of Navy SEALs. And uh, the person telling the story says this is when the, when the seals burst into the room, they burst into this, this horrible place that the hostages had been kept. And, and the hostages were, were terrified. And they had been in captivity for so long, and that they had been so abused and, and, and so devoid of any human contact other than abusive contact that they assumed that what was happening, even in the rescue, was some kind of cruel trick by the guards that their captors were just playing yet another trick on them, torturing them some other way. And so they refused. They couldn't trust. They wouldn't be rescued. They wouldn't go with the seals. They just huddled scared. Until one of the soldiers had an idea, he took off his gear, his helmet, his, his weapons. He set it all down. And at great risk to himself, stripping off all of this protective gear, he curled up on the cold, filthy ground alongside of one of the broken individuals speaking softly to them, touching them tenderly. You see, he made himself one of them, weak for their sake. And that's the moment the hostages knew the enemy would never do that. The enemy never touched them like that. The enemy never made themselves vulnerable in that way. And eventually the hostages believed every one of them and only then could they be rescued safely out of the place. It's a great picture of exactly what Jesus does. He comes near. He makes himself vulnerable and weak.